0: Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Thank you, Eric and worship team, for... Leading us in the truths, we're just saying, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. So um, if you would, bring out your uh, worship bulletin. We're going to read the passage that we're going to be studying today. It's also going to be on the screens or read it in your Bible. We're going to be in Mark 4, verses 21 through 34. So you read along. He also said to them, as a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, isn't to be put on a lampstand for there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to ear to hear, let him listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear by the measure you use. It will be measured to you and more will be added to you for whoever has more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he does not know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these, as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. Pray with me. Lord, we come into this place today with our biggest need um, to hear from you. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts you would open our minds and we would clearly hear the words of Jesus in this season of Advent as we make space on our calendars, as we make space in our homes for things of Christmas, I pray that we would make space in our hearts for you, Jesus, that we would bring you in a season of longing, our longings, our longings for peace, for health, for hope, for love, And I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, the one who came to dwell among us, um, to put on the flesh of a man, to save us, and to bring us home to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you truly were Emmanuel, and that when the angel told Mary what to call you, he said, call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins, Thank you that you are a successful, triumphant Savior. I pray that we would lift our eyes away from the things that we hope in in this world to bring us life and satisfaction and give us the grace to hear about your everlasting kingdom, the kingdom that will have no end and the one um, that you invite us into to help build. I pray for our church that we would not be the type of people who could gain the whole world but forfeit our own souls. Please do this by your grace, Jesus. Amen.
1: Okay, chapter 4 is the main parables portion of Mark's biography of Jesus. So, Jesus' uh, most common method, his preferred method of teaching to the large crowds that were following him when he was in public was with parables. And the question that naturally arises is, why? Why does Jesus use parables. Between the four gospels there's something like 60 parables that Jesus used. Why did he do that? That's the question that the disciples asked in the passage that we looked at last week and it's the question that might arise for us again this morning. Why speak in parables instead of making yourself more clear? Jesus Matt did a great job of answering that question in detail last week, and so if you want the fullest answer, go back and listen to his sermon if you didn't get a chance to hear it. But in short, as Matt said, Jesus uses the parables as a sort of filter, okay? What Jesus is saying by using parables is relationship with me precedes and enables any and all understanding of the kingdom of God and what life in the kingdom is like. Or another way to put it is if you... you you want to live in the kingdom, you have to be following, learning to follow the king. You can't understand life in the kingdom apart from its king. And so Jesus is saying, if you try to understand these parables apart from me, you will soon be confused and frustrated. We have a tendency to try to reduce life and maybe especially spiritual life to a principle or a set of rules. And Jesus is saying, no, relationship precedes rules. I am irreducible, and you were made for a dynamic relationship with me. If you try to understand these parables apart from me, you'll be confused. But in the light of Jesus, these stories begin to photosynthesize and to bear fruit. Okay. Now, when my now wife, Brentley, and I were dating, there was only one occasion when we almost broke up. There was only one fight that was so bad that we almost couldn't get past it, and it was when she told me that she didn't like the movie Inception. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, after the first service, she caught me uh, in the hall, and she was like, if you're going to tell a story about me, you need to tell it right. You need to tell the people that I hated the movie Inception. I had told her, this is a spectacular movie. Everything that Christopher Nolan makes is amazing. This is one of the best movies of all time. Let's watch it together because I love you and I wanna share something good with you. And when it was over, she said, it wasn't, it wasn't that great. I really, I, I, didn't, I didn't like it. Um, and I said, I don't know if I can be with someone who doesn't like the movie Inception. <laughs> um, now, don't worry, we, we made it through. It probably wouldn't be fair to say that we resolved that conflict so much as we just put it off until a later date in our relationship, okay? But in any case, Inception, in my opinion, is an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, you should make it a point to see the movie post-haste. If you have seen it, you know that basically the plot, the premise of this movie is that Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, Cobb and his team, they descend to a dream within a dream within a dream. And why do they do that? They do it to plant an idea in the mind of a single man, hence the title Inception. To incept, to plant an idea in his mind that motivates a dramatic redirection of his entire life. And at one point in the movie, Cobb says, What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? No, an idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in here somewhere. And listen, listen to this. The smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. Now, I want to suggest to you that what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Mark, what he is doing in his earthly ministry, and what he is doing in these parables is not dissimilar to inception. The Bible says that there is this grand merit- grand uh, meta-narrative, this higher reality of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not less real than our reality, it is more real than our reality. And in fact, life in the kingdom makes life in this world seem sort of an ephemeral mist by comparison. But at a real moment in history, God himself descended into the world and he lived a story within a story, right? The mega reality of the kingdom manifested in the human life of Jesus. And within the story of his life, Jesus goes around and he loves to tell these little stories, these parables that are microcosms of the kingdom. So he's always teaching saying the kingdom of heaven is like this, A child. The kingdom of heaven is like this, a treasure hidden in a field, right? And at the heart of all of these parables is a seed. Did you notice that? Did you notice in the passage last week, the passage this week, and very many of his parables, Jesus loves to talk about seeds. A sower planting seeds. And when a seed, when that seed takes root in a person's heart, it sticks. It is resilient and highly contagious, and it starts to bear fruit, and it can redirect a person's entire life into the very kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is doing with the parables, and so I think the question that we should ask this morning is, what is the seed? What is the seed, the idea, the truth that is the small, simple, unassuming majestic, regenerative, life-altering core of the kingdom of God? And there are a couple of ways that we could answer that question, all right? One would be to go all the way back to the beginning of our story, to go back to Genesis chapter three, right? The moment of the first sin, the disastrous fall, and to hear God say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her seed, the word there is zera, singular, the seed. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. A seed promised at the very worst moment to decapitate the dragon and rescue sinners. And in the same vein, do you remember last week in our passage, Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter six. He says, I am using parables in continuity with what God told the prophet Isaiah. He said, go proclaim the message, but people are not going to understand. And he says, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah understandably asks, how long, O Lord? How long will this status of not understanding continue? And in Isaiah six thirteen, God says, until when things seem to be at their very worst, the holy seed will come to Israel. What is the seed? No, who is the seed? He's finally here. Could there be any seed more small and unassuming than a baby in a manger? The seed of the kingdom planted in a cradle in the dirt. Alternatively, We could just go back a few verses in Mark 4, 14, when Jesus tells the disciples, the sower sows the word. So he says the seed is the word, but what it literally says there is the sower sows the logos, the word, singular. Again, it's the same word that John uses at the beginning of his biography of Jesus when he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became human and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. The seed is the word is Jesus. Jesus is both the sower and the seed, the core, the epicenter of the kingdom. But we have to get more specific than that, right? We have to be more specific and why do we have to be more specific? Well, remember Jesus was right there in front of the people in this story but most of them still misunderstood and tried either consciously or subconsciously to misappropriate him. And we are just as good at creating caricatures of Jesus as they were. Okay? And so if you think that Jesus came merely to help you manifest your own dreams in this fleeting life, that's not true. That's not the seed. Right? He did not come primarily to give us our dreams in this life. That's what a lot of people in this original crowd thought and many prosperity preachers and best-selling authors and politicians and Christian influencers have made a good living telling that lie ever since then. Or if you think that Jesus came simply to be a good teacher, that is that he came to give guidance and sort of self-help principles to get us back on track so that we could earn our way into God's good favor, that's not the seed either. That is not what Jesus came to do. And in fact, he wants to disabuse us of that false notion as decisively as possible. So here's the seed. All right, this is the truth that the disciples didn't get at first and were even opposed to. Right, but it's eventually redirected their lives and it redefined their entire understanding. Here it is, the seed of the kingdom. God became a human so that he could live and die and rise again. And he said that he did it for you. Let me say that again. God became a human, he lived, he died, and he rose again, and all throughout he claimed that he was doing it for you. A small seed, a simple truth, Jesus died for me. It's what we call the gospel, now, is that everything that's true about God? No. Is that the entirety of what he wants to teach us about life in the kingdom? No, it isn't. But that little seed, when it takes root in your heart, is the grace and truth radiating nucleus that transforms everything else. Now, let's expand on that a bit, okay? Let's rehearse this together, right. Jesus lived and died and rose again for me. Based on that simple truth, that seed, there are a number of follow-up questions that we might ask, okay? The first one would be, why did he do that? Why would Jesus do that? Maybe you've heard the old adage about the difference between cats and dogs, A cat thinks of its owner, she feeds me, she cleans up after me, she pets me, she loves me, I must be God, Right? A dog thinks of its owner. She feeds me, she cleans up after me, she loves me. She must be God. When it comes to the why of the gospel, don't be a cat person, be a dog person, okay? (laughs) Jesus didn't come to die because I am great, because I deserved it. He came to die because he is great, and he's great in his graciousness. Why did Jesus do it? In a word, grace. He loves to give us what we don't deserve because he is great in grace and love. At the core of his being, he is deeply, radically gracious and loving. Romans chapter five, verse six says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a very good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to show us that God is far greater and more gracious than we would have ever dared to imagine. The greatest conception of his love that you can hold in your mind falls infinitely short of how loving he actually is. That points to another question that we might ask. From that seed of Jesus lived and died for me, we could ask, why did he have to die? Why was his living and his dying necessary at all? And the answer to that question is imputation. Okay, here's your $10 theology word for the morning, imputation. Imputation means having something credited to you that did not previously belong to you something that wasn't yours being counted to you as if it was your own. And if you wanna get technical, what we're actually talking about here is double imputation. Okay? By coming and living as a human, Jesus earned a record of righteousness, and that righteousness, that rightness with God, is imputed to anyone who believes in him. Right? That's why Jesus came and lived a human life into adulthood a perfect righteousness of Jesus counted to you as your own. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus as if it were your very own. But the reason that Jesus died was to take the consequences of sin in my place. And so on the cross, my sin was imputed to Jesus. It was counted to Jesus as if it was his own, and he took the judgment that sin justly deserved. And so we sing... My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, and it is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus lived and died to accomplish that double imputation for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness, One more offshoot question we could ask, why the resurrection? What does it mean that Jesus rose again? And it certainly means that he is powerful enough to defeat death, right? We just sang it together, risen with healing in his wings, Right? born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons and daughters of earth, born to give us second birth. That's the promise and the hope that we have as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But I think that by his resurrection, Jesus is also showing us the pattern of flourishing, the pattern of fruitfulness in the kingdom. So in John 12, 23, another important seed saying of Jesus, John twelve twenty three, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he talking about? His death and his resurrection. Right? Truly I tell you, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself but if it dies, it produces much fruit. And in Matthew 16, he adds to that saying, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find eternal life. You see that? Unless a seed goes down to the ground and dies, it remains a dry, lonely seed. But when it goes down into the dirt, when it seems to die, that is when it actually lives and produces much fruit. Following Jesus involves daily dependence. It involves self-denial. It involves a dozen little deaths every day. But on the other side is resurrection and kingdom life. If you try to protect and preserve your life as you have previously known it, you'll lose out on true life, but if you give your life away to Jesus, if you lay down your life to love others, you'll find the real life, the kingdom life that you were made for, the life your heart thirsts for. That's what the death and the resurrection of Jesus is modeling for us. It is the J-curve model of the life of following Jesus. The way up is down, and death always leads to resurrection for those who belong to Christ. Now, why rehearse the gospel like that? Why go through that rehearsal of the gospel and the questions that we could ask about the seed? If you've been a follower of Jesus for a little while, you probably have heard most of that before. And if you're new to this, if you're newer to this kinda whole Christian thing, this gospel thing, you might be thinking, I won't remember most of that tomorrow. And don't worry about that, by the way, because that's all of us, right? I won't remember most of that tomorrow, right? Why rehearse the gospel like this? Well, I think that it might be how growth with Jesus happens. It might be how growth in the kingdom actually happens. What if every time a hard question or a doubt or a confusion or crisis, a a sin struggle or a pain point in your life, what if every time something like that comes along, it's actually a new bud, a new uh, sprig of gospel understanding breaking through from the seed that's in your heart? What if those pains and confusions are exactly the broken and tear-watered soil where the seed can take root and produce life in new ways? And I think when I was younger, and by when I was younger, I, I mean maybe until like eight months ago, um, okay, <laughs> I, I think that what I thought is that maturity in the Christian life looks like sort of this steady, gradual ascent into higher sort of knowledge and holiness, And recently, I think what God has been impressing on me is that actually what happens is that there are these moments in our life when the floor collapses, right? The floor falls out from under us and we descend into a deeper dependence and a deeper need for Jesus, a deeper need for the gospel. So in 2012, there was this moment in my life when my life totally fell apart, right? And what I did is I white knuckled my life and I said, fight back for success as quickly as possible. With really without any regard for Jesus. I would have said that I was a Christian at the time, but I white-knuckled my life and my story and said, I will succeed, I will recover. Right? And as a result, I think that I have a lot of brokenness and trauma, maybe that I've never processed. Right? Maybe it's only happening recently, but it, it, was a, it was an unfruitful time in my life. Right? Then about a year ago, maybe a year, yeah, about a year ago, there was this other time, when the floor fell out from under me. I got sort of a a painful, a brutal moment in my life where I realized I'm a bigger sinner than I previously thought, and other people have a capacity to hurt me more than I previously thought, but there were all these people around me saying, interact with Jesus over that, right? In that place of brokenness, in that sort of epicenter of excruciating pain, plant the seed of the gospel there, and see if it grows, right? Jesus died and rose for me, right? Imputation, grace, death leads to resurrection, right? And so if you're at a place in your life where you're feeling that pain, right, where you've realized a new sin struggle in your life, or maybe uh, divorce feels like a very real prospect in your marriage, right? You're suffering physically, right? You've lost someone you love, right? Don't, Don't ignore that. Plant the gospel there. Rehearse the gospel in that exact place. Ask Jesus to meet you there with his grace and his love and his resurrection power. Ask other Christians to help you do that and get involved enough in their lives to help them do that. Okay, we're like 20-something minutes in and we haven't actually talked about any of the parables themselves. Okay, and I'm hesitant to take these parables that Jesus tells in this story and to say here's what they mean. Okay, I'm hesitant to do that. I heard a story this week of the author Flannery O'Connor, the great short story writer, and sort of in her own way, a great parabolist like Jesus. And in relation to one of her stories, she was asked one time, could you explain the meaning of that story to me in a sentence? And she said, and sort of classic to her style, true to her style, she said, if I could explain it in a sentence, I wouldn't have written a story, right? (laughs) And that's what Jesus is doing with the parables, right? He's saying the thing that I am telling you about the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom is too great, it's too multifaceted, it is too organic and flourishing and glorious for me to put it in a single propositional sentence, right? It's a story that you need to mull over for the rest of your life, But I think that with kind of that essential seed, right, that seed of the gospel rooted in our hearts, we can start to understand these little stories within the story of Jesus, within the story of the kingdom, right? So first, Jesus says, we, we, we we seek to understand these parables in light of Jesus, right? And spoiler alert, maybe that's what the first parable means, right? First, Jesus says, you don't bring a lamp into your house to hide it under the bed, and so don't bring me into your life and then try to understand everything else apart from the illumination that only I can give, In this first little simile, Jesus is saying, as he says elsewhere, I am the light, and I am the light by which you see all other light and truth. So when Jesus the light comes into your life, you begin to see everything in light of who he is. Now, how do we do that? Two ways, I think. One is, when you are reading the Bible on your own, don't read any chapter of the Bible without looking for the rays of the light of Jesus shining into that place, Reading the whole Bible with Jesus in mind, with the gospel in mind, is not a biased way to read the Bible. It is the right way to read the Bible. Jesus says, I'm the revelation whereby all of this makes sense, and without me, none of it makes sense. But also, when you read the story of your own life, right, when you read the chapters of the story of your life, don't read any part, don't read any episode without looking for the rays of the light of Jesus there. If If the seed is Jesus rose from the dead, then that means he's alive right now. And that means he is dynamically interacting with you even in the places that seem darkest. Look for the light in your story. Next, Jesus says, verse 24, by the measure that you use, it will be measured to you and more will be added to you. Whoever has more will be given to him and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now, that's a weird one. That's kind of inconsiderate, Jesus. What what is he talking about there? Well, go back to the seed. Go back to the gospel. Anything and everything that you have in your life as a follower of Jesus, why do you have it? Grace. Grace alone. And I think what Jesus is saying in this little parable is if you think of life primarily in terms of earning, if you want to say people get what they deserve, they get what they earn, then you can measure life that way, but your life will also be measured that way. There was a a similar Jewish proverb I read that was said around the same time as when Jesus made this statement that says, the pot that you cook in is the pot that you'll be cooked in, right? And maybe some of you guys saw in Frank Reich's interview after he was fired, right, he said, the NFL is a meritocracy. It is an earning-based system. And then he said, it's not unconditional love. And if you know Frank Reich, and you know anything about his story, the good news is he knows where unconditional love is found. Do you know where unconditional love is found? If you want to think of life primarily in terms of earning, then that will be a dehydrating, shriveling, reductive, taking, taking, taking way of thinking and living life. But if you say, everything that I have is grace, I didn't earn it, but Jesus loves to freely give me more. That is a generative, a fruitful, indeed a limitless way of thinking about life. And you'll start to find that generosity and gratitude and love naturally spring up from your heart. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like small, local, slow farming. It starts with a seed seed. And it takes time. And it's not impressive or glorious. We don't always know how it works. It's seasonal and sometimes it's hidden, but from the smallest, most unassuming seed, God will produce something much bigger and better than you could have imagined. From a baby in a manger comes the glorious kingdom of God breaking into our world. And from the seed of the gospel taking root in individual hearts comes flourishing And resurrection and eternal life now as we come to this table right what is the Lord's Supper it is a parable that you can taste a parable that you can eat Jesus the night before he went to the cross he sat down at the table with his disciples and basically what he said was the kingdom of heaven is like this meal with me a small seemingly unimpressive meal where life is found. In the same way this morning, Jesus invites you to the table with him to taste the gospel, to have the seed of the gospel planted in your heart anew. In a few moments, I'm going to pray for us, and then our elders will come forward to serve. But let me just remind you: okay, there are exit the section to the right. Uh, exit your section to the right and come back to the left side. Okay, there are prepackaged option for people who need gluten-free bread, and also remember the grape juice fence: two outer rings are grape juice; the inner part is wine. Okay, but here's here's what's important: all right, if you don't have that seed of gospel faith in your heart yet if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't come and partake of this meal, okay? The Bible says that it actually, not only would it not be good for you, but it might actually be harmful, you, harmful to you, and so have the integrity to not partake of this meal, all right? And you can find some prayers on the back of the bulletin that can help you think through what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus, or if you have more questions about him than you have answers, that's okay, but don't come and take this meal yet, all right? But if you're here this morning, and you've put your faith in Jesus, and you know that your faith is weak and wavering, and you've had a disaster of a week or a disaster of a month since the last time we took the supper together, know that this meal is for your assurance, for your nourishment. This is not a meal about the quality of your faith. It's a meal about the object of your faith. It's not a meal about how strong your faith is, it's a meal about how strong Jesus is, and he loves to feed us, to nourish us spiritually through this meal. And so if that's you, come forward and partake, hopefully and joyfully, because Jesus will meet you here. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we do thank you that you spoke to your people in many parables, but not without giving us the, the, the truth of the gospel, the seed of the gospel that is the explanation and the key that unlocks life in the kingdom to us. And we thank you that you gave us this meal as a taste of the gospel. And I do just pray for each of your people in this room that as we partake of this meal together, that you would give us a taste of the kingdom, that you would nourish us with the grace and the love that you have for us. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.